Now get out of here. Uh, as Janelle mentioned, I just wanted to make you aware the next two weeks, uh, we're going to be taking a break from John. We're going to be doing uh, a, a short series on unity. Uh, it's going to be a, a teachings that uh, all the churches involved in Pastors United will be doing as well. So we're all kind of teaching on the same things. It's kind of embodying what it is that we're wanting to represent uh, in the unity service. So, uh, so just be aware that next week and the following week after that, uh, we'll be taking a break from John. Uh, but today we are not taking a break from John, uh, and uh, I'm excited about getting into this study, uh, but we're going to cover a lot of ground, uh, so uh, I'm just going to hit the ground running, if that's cool with you guys. Uh, we're still uh, making our way through this, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. If you want to follow along in some way, find your way to John chapter 6, please. We're in uh, a section that is all thematically tied to Passover uh, and to the Exodus and to food. Uh, remember how John likes to carry themes through in his, in his gospel. And he's going to be doing that in a big way in this section that we're in today. Now, as Janelle pointed out last week, in many ways, these themes were meant to get the attention of his Jewish readers. So it's sort of a way of alerting them that, hey, something important uh, and familiar is happening here. And it, and it all centers around who we are and the significance of that. As the chapter began, we read about Jesus doing the sign of multiplying the bread and the fish, feeding a group of over 5,000 people, uh, and they had enough left over for 12 baskets of, of leftovers. And so all of a sudden, the people started thinking that, you know, Jesus might be useful here. And so they tried to start a political revolution and declare, declare Jesus as king in defiance of Caesar. But, but as we looked at, pushing their agenda just made Jesus uh, slip away from them. And then we read how the disciples left that area by boat without Jesus, got caught in a storm, and then Jesus met them walking on the water. So we've got those themes of water uh, again uh, and the chaotic waters through which God seems to move in the creation account. He moved through the chaotic waters and bringing new life. In the Exodus story, he moved through the chaotic waters to bring a new Israel, and now we've got the same. It's all tied to the themes of Exodus and Passover. Someone surpassing Moses was present and bringing about a new exodus. And Janelle did a great job, didn't she, last week of expositing that? If, if, if you weren't here, you didn't get a chance to hear it, I really recommend it. We've got it all online. It's, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's an important uh, exposition on that passage that links all these things together. Now, the narrative today is going to come back to the subject of bread, of food. Something important, well, at least to some of us, anyway. Something, but, but, but something that we can't live without. But Jesus is, again, going to draw a lesson that distinguishes between temporal, material solutions to human needs and God's plan to transform humanities in ways that last forever, in ways that never get undone. And he communicates all of this through the picture of bread. So it's cool. It's sort of complex. It's a little bit shocking as we get into it. So we're going to dive in and start exploring this. We're going to pick up in verse 22 where we left off. It says, The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the far shore saw that the disciples had taken the only boat, and they realized Jesus had not gone with them. Several boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the Lord had blessed the bread and the people had eaten. 
So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went across to Capernaum to look for him. They found him on the other side of the lake and asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I'll tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understand, understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. Okay, so the people who had been the recipients of this wonder bread, the multiplied bread, realized that Jesus was gone. They jumped in the boats. They head over to Capernaum. And when they find Jesus there, they're puzzled because his crew had left without him. They knew that. And now all of a sudden, he's there on the other side. So they're likely asking, how did you get here? As much as they're asking, when? And to me, it's funny how quick we are to assume ownership over Jesus. Have you noticed that? Demanding an account of his activity, like when, how, what, what's going on here? But he brushes all of that aside and he begins challenging the motives of this newly formed fan club he's got. He he tells them in verse 26, they're looking for him not because they believe what the sign was pointing to. Because remember, these are identified as signs. They're not miracles to entertain or anything like that. These were signs pointing to a bigger truth. And they weren't seeing it. They weren't recognizing that. And, and, and they were there because at this point, he seemed like a good avenue towards a free lunch. Yet it wasn't even just the free bread. There were political currents in this as well. Remember, they were trying to make Jesus a king. Jesus was feeding them like Moses fed the Israelites in the wilderness. So they were picking up uh, on these themes that this was another exodus. But they were still looking for a Messiah that was going to lead them out from under the oppression of Rome. They were looking for a Messiah who, hey, he can multiply bread. He could multiply sandals. He could multiply swords in our fight against Gentile oppression. And this, again, is addressing a common problem. They weren't really following Jesus. They, they were still following their own plans. And they thought Jesus was going to be able to facilitate that for them. But Jesus is telling them, you don't, you don't want me. You want what I can do for you because you think that getting what you want is going to lead you to the best kind of life. And he's saying in this, you're so wrong about that. And what I think this is telling us is that our best life is found in trusting God's purposes instead of our own temporal pursuits. Instead of trying to get all of these things from this existence that we've got right now on a material, temporal, uh, temporary basis and begin to see things from a different perspective. See, when Jesus is talking about eternal life in, in verse 27, it means more than just going to heaven when we die. It carries a present tense to it. It's, it's a life of meaning and purpose and wholeness. That also extends on into eternity. A, a, a life that's connected with God and his eternal nature. A life connected with God was the original intent for life. That was the whole reason he made the human race in the first place. We are to be image bearers made in his likeness. We could say it's real life. To have a life that's connected to the divine creator who made us. Now, in our culture, in our culture, it's assumed that we have to be materialistic and pragmatic if we're ever going to be able to achieve the good life that we're looking for and that's advertised to us all the time. In fact, consumerism plays a large role 
in that. We have to have all that we want monetarily and materially and emotionally and physically and politically. Things have to go our way if we're ever going to be satisfied. And we approach our religion within that same paradigm. What we want from our religion is something that is going to make our pursuits work for us. But Jesus is making it clear to us that there is more to life than our material pursuits or or the fulfillment of our own temporal desires. There's something more going on here. So what Jesus is doing is he's challenging us to adjust our description or at least our perception of what the good life is. I mean, when you sit here right at this moment and you're thinking, like, if I challenge you, imagine the good life for yourself. Where do your thoughts go? Are you on a beach somewhere? Are you, I didn't mean to look just at you, but yeah, I, you share my love of the beach. That's why I was just, but, but, but I mean, is it, is it, is it all of the material types of things that we normally, the, the, the temporal types of things that we normally associate with the stuff that's finally give us the security and the happiness? You know, happiness is built around the perception of what's happening at the moment being positive for myself. Jesus is challenging us to re-examine that idea of the good life. Because we can have plenty of food and a very nice place to live. We could have respect and power, but still feel lacking. And how many people have we seen who've achieved all of those things that come across and say, hey, we're still lacking. I still don't have what I'm looking for. Well, that would be you too. But that deep longing comes from a spiritual place. It's a place that transcends our, our shallow and temporal desires. It's deeper than that. And this is what Jesus is trying to tap into. Ultimate meaning and purpose is found in God's plan for our lives, of living according to His will and not just our own. He says, don't work for these temporal, material solutions for life that are just going to leave you hungry again. Work for the good life that endures forever. That's the basic concept. But now that leaves us with a lot of questions. Well, what? I mean, how, what do, what do we do? How, how do we do that? Okay, and the crowd responds the same way. Verse 28. They replied, well, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. Don't work for perishable food, Jesus says. And then they ask, well, how do we get the eternal stuff? That's what they're asking there. What do we, how do we you know, work for the God stuff you're talking about? And the answer that he gives, believe in Jesus, in who he is, in the good news of God's kingdom invading this earth, that through him all things will one day be set right. Verse 29 is what all of the following verses that we're going to read in this section are trying to convey. It all points back to this statement, believe in Jesus. Everything that we're going to read, all the imagery that Jesus uses is all pointing us back to this basic concept. But you know, we say this in church all the time, you know, hey, believe in Jesus. But but what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Like what... That's the imagery that Jesus is about to, to, to use is meant to convey the meaning behind. But we really got to think about getting past just the, the quick and, and trite usage of that phrase, believe in Jesus. 
The people listening to this realize this has suddenly taken a different turn. Uh, now, you know, we were here for the lunch. Uh, and, and, and so in another strange shift of attitudes, they challenged Jesus. We get to verse 30. They answered, well, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scriptures say Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. So again, they're picking up correctly on the new Exodus signals, but the message is getting scrambled because of their own preconceived bias about what God's intent is. So verse 32, Jesus said, I'll tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And just real quickly here, like for us as mostly Westerners reading this, you know, as Gentiles, this bit of dialogue recorded here just kind of feels like it went off the rails. Like, what are they talking about? But he's actually picking up ideas from other parts of the Old Testament. Remember in, in Exodus, in the wanderings of Israel out in the wilderness, at one point they're complaining and asking for food, and so God sends them manna. In Exodus uh, chapter 16, verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, Look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. And then Psalm 78, 24 picks it up again. He rained down manna for them to eat. He gave them bread from heaven. So this is where this language is coming from that they're using here. And they're all familiar with it. We less so, but they, they're, they're picking up on it. So Jesus is driving home that God, not Moses, provided bread from heaven. And Jesus is telling them that the manna was simply an image of what it was God fully intended. Jesus is the true source of life that God had intended for the human race. That is what the bread represents, life. It represents that, that survivability. <laughs> but the dialogue goes on, and, and I just have to warn you here, it is pretty graphic and intense what Jesus is about to say here. Sometimes we do this a disservice because we, you know, preachers will often, will will look at it and just say, well, this was a reasonable thing for Jesus to say. You just need to know it's not. I mean, there's no, we can say, well, back in those ancient days, they could understand. Nobody was going to understand what Jesus was saying here. In any culture, in any time, what Jesus is about to say in the verses we're going to read is going to be offensive. It's just, you know, But Jesus is using the most extreme language he can to convey to us that this is the most important thing that we're going to encounter in our lives. You'll see what I mean as we go along here. So verse 34, sir, they said, give us that bread every day. So we're back on this. We just, you know, keep, keep it coming. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Just to warn you too, we're going to read a lot of verses here, so buckle up. Uh, uh, But you haven't believed in me, even though you've seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me, and I will never reject them. For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he's given me, but that I should raise them up. At the last day, for it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. So they're still stuck way back up over there. They said, Isn't this Jesus, 
the son of Joseph. We know his father and mother. How can he say I came down from heaven? But Jesus replied, stop complaining about what I said. For no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them to me. And at the last day, I will raise them up. As it's written in the scriptures, they all, they were all, they will all be taught by God. He's quoting Isaiah 54. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from Him comes to me. Not that anyone has ever seen the Father. Only I, who is sent from God, have seen Him. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread, which I will offer so the world may live, is my flesh. Then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They asked. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. You know, as I imagine this scene, this is where it all goes really quiet, except maybe the sound of crickets and birds uh, somewhere. I imagine the stunned looks on the faces of the people as they try to process the temerity of this guy that they knew as a kid who has just said these words to them. It says in verse 41 and verse 43 that the people were murmuring and complaining about what he said. And this is a hyperlink for us back to Numbers 11 Uh, where the people began to complain to Moses during the wilderness wanderings of Israel. Uh, And that same pattern we see is being repeated here. It's overlaid over top of this. Now, I know that this is a lot to try to unpack. It's really important stuff for us as followers of Jesus to kind of dig into this and, and get what he's saying, at least the gist of what he's trying to get across here. It begins, as most things in John do in his gospel, with a misunderstanding. Jesus is saying one thing, and the people are hearing uh, uh, something else. And they're still stuck on physical bread and physical eating. And they're challenging him. If you're really the one that Moses forecast for us, then repeat his miracle and give us more manna. In other words, we're hungry. It's about noon. We could eat now. And it's sort of hilarious because the whole reason that they're there... Following Jesus over to Capernaum is why. He just fed them. He just did this miracle in front of them, this sign providing bread in the wilderness. But they're, you know, come more, a little bit more, please. As I said, Jesus explains that the bread from heaven was just a physical type of the true bread from heaven, which was Jesus himself, the Messiah. And so they, they come to this point in the conversation where, like the woman at the well, they express their desire. Well, give us this bread. We want this bread every day. Remember the woman at the well said, hey, I'll take that water to drink. And in answer, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. A, a significant use of that, that phrase, I am. It was the covenant name given to Israel uh, for God. Uh, tell them that I am sent you. Uh, so in making this claim of being the bread of life, he's all 
also forecasting that he's going to be giving his body up for the life of the world. And so the bread then becomes a symbol of his coming death that, that he's going to, to experience on the, on the cross. So remember, we asked earlier, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? We use that phrase all the time. We'll just believe in Jesus. And we find all kinds of things attached to that. Oh, just believe in Jesus. All your troubles will go away. <laughs> uh, you know, believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. What are we talking about when we say believe in Jesus? What does it mean? Here, I believe we get one aspect of what it means. We could even say maybe this is the introductory phase of this, of believing in Jesus. But we believe in Jesus when we trust in God's forgiveness of sin through Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. It's the same picture that Jesus was presenting at the Last Supper. He took the elements from the Passover meal, remember, and he repurposed them to be a picture of his sacrifice for us, of what he was about to do for us. The bread and the wine became symbols of his flesh and blood, pointing right back to this statement that he's making here. His flesh, his blood, his body sacrificed for us. So to believe in Jesus is to, first of all, believe that when Jesus died on the cross, the full consequence of our sin was put onto him. He took that for us. If we go back to the Garden of Eden story and God warned the human race, the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Jesus dies on a tree, taking the full consequence of that fateful decision onto himself so that we then are delivered from it. The cross, for all of its mystery, and you've heard me say many times before, I can't explain the mechanics of this to you. I don't understand it myself, but I do believe that the cross, in all of its mystery, is still the bedrock of our faith. This sacrificial love that Jesus demonstrated in taking the consequence of sin to himself when he was innocent of it, so that we could live. And it's all couched in this elemental stuff of bread and water, of flesh and blood, of life and death. Jesus died in our place. That is the bread that Jesus gave to the world so that we could live. And we don't ever, you know, I know this is getting technical, but really we don't ever want to lose sight of what it was that was the motive for this. It was the sacrificial love that God represented through Christ's sacrifice. God did this because he loves us. We go back to John chapter 3 when we were there. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's a a major point that sets Christianity apart from other world religions. The sacrifice of love made by God himself. In most religious contexts, it's the other way around. In in most religious contexts, there's something we have to sacrifice, something we've got to do to be able to get reconnected with God. In Christianity, almost in, in isolation, we've got the, the exact opposite message. God did it all. He did it all for us. Why? There's no other reason that, than that He loves us. He loves you. He didn't, he didn't want to go on without us. That's Man, we never want to lose the import of that. We don't ever want to let ourselves get dulled to the reality of that. You know, we're coming up on Memorial Day weekend. That's a significant time when we as a nation remember the sacrifices that were made by people who served our country in foreign wars and lost their lives, made the ultimate sacrifice. But, but listen, 
we, I mean, I'm not making light of that. That's important and we want to remember it. But every Sunday we gather here. We're gathering here because we're remembering there is one who loved us unto death, who laid down his life for us. Not because we deserved it. Not because we were just so cool that, man, you can't replace that one. No. Only because he loved us. Because he loves us. It is ongoing. It is real. It is powerful. And it emanates from his throne to each and every one of us. Now, on a regular basis, the church talks about eating flesh and drinking blood as a symbol of Jesus' death. We're going to be doing that here today. But imagine being there when Jesus said this, like having a brand new idea. The people are there. They're waiting for a Messiah to come and do miracles like Moses to overthrow Rome and all this. And Jesus starts saying that to get eternal life, we've got to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And I mean, imagine what it felt like to be there in that moment. This guy that you kind of had respect for up until that moment. Like I just, you know, did, did he just, did he just say, <laughs> we had to eat. Martha, get the kids. We're out of here. Some sort of bloodletting cult. Confusion is almost as much of a literary technique in John's gospel as symbolism is. Think about how much we've been reading about confusion. Here, uh, you know, the people are confused. How can he give us his flesh to eat? The woman at the well is confused. How are you going to draw water? Nicodemus is confused. How am I supposed to be born uh, again? Because they were taking literally what Jesus was saying figuratively, trying to, to draw something deeper out of this. But it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't back off or try to explain or soften this somehow. He just keeps pressing it home, hoping that they're going to make the connection. So we get to verse 57. He said, is Jesus still talking? I live because of the living Father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. That was a meeting he didn't want to miss, I suppose. But uh, that's where we're going to stop today. So, so Jesus is making a contrast between what everyone's expectations were regarding Messiah, of what it is that he came to do and, and to bring, and, and what he's bringing into the world isn't like what their ancestors ate or experienced or participated in. It's not a law written in stone that couldn't bring life. Jesus is providing the direct connection between God and himself, uh, or with God through himself, is what I should have said, by us becoming a part of him. Remember, he just said that a little bit ago. It was a key phrase in there. He said, I in them and they in me. And this is the whole concept that eating uh, is for us. Eating becomes this powerful symbol of internalizing everything that Jesus is, of, of taking him into myself so that he becomes my life, becomes everything about me. Eating the bread is a symbolic equivalent of trusting and believing in, in, in who Jesus is and the promise that he's made to set all things right one day. You know, when we eat something... It becomes a part of us. We know that's basic biology. We learned that in grade school. You know the phrase, you are what you eat. Yeah, it's absorbed into our bodies. We're nourished by it. I mean, ideally, if we're just, you know, eating gummy words, drinking molded hops, then it's probably not as nourishing. But, you know, the idea is we're, 
We're, we're nourished by what it is that we eat. We become united with what we eat. Why in the ancient world, eating a meal with somebody was so significant because, you know, you're both eating the same thing. That means that you're a part of each other in, in that way. And, and, and so Jesus is saying in these verses that believing in Jesus is going to have that same effect as eating something does. We'll become united with him, inseparable from him. He in us, shaping our lives as we live them, and we in him as he sustains us and leads us through this. And again, I know this is a little heady. I, I apologize. It's the nature of this, this passage that we're reading here. But basically, Jesus is telling us what it means to believe in him. And that is we believe in Jesus by committing our lives to his values, his priorities, and his purposes. See, this is important for us today because the phrase believe in Jesus can be and really has become so nebulous in so many ways. I mean, what does it mean? For some, and especially in light of our modern world, it becomes more of an academic pursuit. Because in the English, when we talk about believing in something, it has to do with our, our thinking and our opinions. I mean, opinions play a large role in the usage of the term believing in something, in our language and the way we use it. So we assume believing in Jesus means that there's a set of propositions that we agree with uh, about him. It's my opinion that these things are are true. But listen, I mean, there's all kinds of... A person can believe in Bigfoot or or a fair insurance payout, and it doesn't have any effect on life uh, in, in any way. We can hold opinions on whether God exists or not. We may believe that Jesus is God and the second person of the Trinity. The church is filled with a wide variety of doctrines and convictions, and these things sometimes get used as as litmus tests for what it means to be a Christian. But when Jesus told his followers to believe... It has to be more than just holding right opinions about God or the Bible or religion. It's when we we tie believe to this concept of feeding on him that we get the bigger idea. And it's interesting in the Greek, I didn't bog you down with it, and I'm going to now anyway, but in the Greek, the language changes. The word he uses for eat when he begins is just, you know, in the normal term that we use for eat. By the time he gets to the end of this, he's using a word that means to to gnaw and to crunch on something. You know, you go to Pineapple Willies, you order the ribs. You don't just take a little and put that down. I mean, no, you grab that thing and worry the meat off the bone and chew on the bone itself. At least you know how I eat ribs. <laughs> Note to self, I will not eat ribs with Rob. But you know, you just you want everything that that morsel has to offer in that. But that's the idea conveyed in that word. It is a focused devouring. This is more than just having an opinion about Jesus. This is having a life defined by a passion for Christ. I'll tell you, if there's anything I want on my gravestone, it's that. He had a passion for Jesus. Jesus takes us out of our plans and into God's pattern. And that's where we find that meaning and that purpose and that hope that we long for. It means being committed to to learning what it is that he taught and letting our lives be shaped by that. It doesn't mean we learn it and, okay, I got that one down and classified it. It means that we're constantly engaged with it. And it's constantly working and unfolding in our lives in a dynamic way so that it affects the way we live so that a little bit of heaven gets demonstrated on earth 
in the way that we carry ourselves through this broken place. It means that we're going to talk to Him and listen for Him because we believe He's real. We believe His Word. We believe He will set all things right one day. Jesus is bread and drink. It's the elemental basics of life that we cannot live without. So this morning, we've attended to God's Word, as we do. Let's look at our own lives as we're considering this. Do we find ourselves as people who are laboring for perishable food? for material or temporal solutions for life? Is that what occupies us, occupies our thinking, occupies all of our time? Are our energies and interests focused only on our own plans, our own material desires? Are we clutching at sand that's passing through our fingers? If so, this morning, I encourage us to find our focus. Let's commit are all to Jesus, to allow him to shape us according to his purposes, his plans. And, 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 and let's allow him to re, uh, readjust our understanding of what fulfillment means and where fulfillment can be found. It means a focused disengagement from the pressures of a consumer culture and a willingness to embrace something deeper, something beyond all of this. Or maybe we find ourselves still agonizing over whether or not God could actually really love us, unsure of his approval, or always worried that maybe God will reject us somehow. If so, then let's let it go. Let's fall into those arms of grace. It was his love that the cross reveals. Let's feed on the bread of life and find peace in that peace with God that is an eternal peace. It's from his realm and it lasts forever. Receive the love that he has for us this morning.